You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So this was a fun one. I talked to Mike Evans, who is the founder of Grubhub, which he started in his spare bedroom and grew into a multi-billion dollar online food delivery colossus. Um, He's also the founder of Fixer.com, an on-demand handy person service focused on social impact. And he's got a new book. It's called Hangry, A Startup Journey. I think you're going to enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Mike Evans, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you've written a very unusual book. Uh, it's part memoir of building your company, Grubhub. It's part manual and startup and innovation practices. And I think it's part memoir in building yourself as the person you want to be. Um, and those elements actually flow very well together. But I'm curious if your publishers had other ideas with regard to the book that they wanted from you. Yeah, I, um, I, so that was the proposal for the book was that okay. I was going to tell a story that was a combination of the starting growth up from scratch in my apartment here in Andersonville. Uh, well, really Edgewater and, uh, and then I was going to juxtapose it with the bike journey because both of them are sort of journeys where uh, where I grow, like where I learn yeah. things about myself and discover things. Uh, and it really is, it's the book is the personal story of what it's like to create something from nothing and bring it all the way through an IPO, right? Like I started with a $140 check and Grubhub got purchased for $7 billion by Just Eat. So it was a pretty big, yeah. pretty big growth story, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. But like the... Like there's a, there's a personal story there too. There's what it's like to go through that, which I think a lot of people would find interesting. Uh, and a lot of that I didn't really discover till after I was gone and was reflecting on it, which I do on the bike trip when I ride off into the sunset and actually ride my bicycle from Virginia to Oregon. 
And and there's a couple other sort of I think somewhat surprising things. I mean, we we don't know each other though. We think our companies did business together at, at certain points. It, it is entirely possible. <laughs> entirely possible. We're both Chicagoans, um, but uh, it's unflinchingly honest. And and you 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 tell on yourself as much as you tell on relationships and other things. You're also funny, um, and uh, I think I am a qualified person to be able to say that. Nice. And I think that comes through in the book. Nice. I feel uh, I feel like I may actually be funny. Yeah. Since you said that, that's like an expert opinion. Yeah, well, and and part of a part of being funny is being true and being honest to yourself, and that's the thing that like, like you really sort of, I don't know, so you so much question, but you actually bring up these like whether you're an a hole or not, uh, and that, that's that's I think a a a very funny thing that comes up in the book. I also answer that question, and the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> so. I appreciate you giving me a little bit of a softball there, but I, no, I, there were times during the journey when I wasn't the person I wanted to be for sure. But that's, that's all of us. I don't, I don't know a human being who can't look back at their, especially, especially when you have a, a, a certain level of success, uh, because at that point you, I know for myself, and I think you're, you, you actually handled this better, maybe than I did at certain points, but you have ethical things that come up that if you are going to do the right thing, it is going to hurt your business. Yeah. And, and in some cases I do them anyway and I let yeah. it hurt the business. And in some cases I make another choice and, right. uh, and I struggle, I struggle with that. Um, yeah. And, and, and then there's, and then it, you know, I talk a lot about quitting things that aren't aligned with your values in the book. Uh, it's sort of a major theme in my life, quitting things yep. yeah, and, and okay. uh, but also pushing through hard things. There's a paradox yeah. about like, which one do you do at what time? So, um, yeah. And I'm, so that's one of the ways I end up handling sort of the ethical dilemma is when it, when the values are too misaligned with my own, with my own, I, I stop doing effort towards the thing. Um, they only let them bend. I don't let them break. Yeah, that's right. So, so let's talk about quitting. Uh, Annie Duke has a fantastic book called quit. And we just had her on the podcast. It's just aired last Friday as a bonus pod. And it's basically her, her quits in her life, but also the fact that we have these great um, uh, metaphors around grit, uh, but it's just as important at times to quit, you kind of have to in an innovation process. So I, I, you actually, I, uh, I have so many quotes from here. Um, uh, and you say, quote, I'm pretty good at quitting things. So can you talk us through some of your quits as it pertains to this? Yeah. So I, I quit my original job as a software developer to go full-time at Grubhub after, after my, my business partner at the time, Matt, uh, Matt Maloney, he, he sold the first restaurant for 140 bucks. I quit pretty shortly after that. You know, I quit, I quit Grubhub at a later date because yeah. it was no longer aligned with my goals. And then I unquit it when some of the board members convinced me to unquit, which was an incredibly embarrassing moment in my life. Uh, and then I did requit again, Grubhub to then go do on the bike trip. And then on the bike trip, like about like a third of the way through when I had crossed the Appalachians, I quit and then unquit. And um, I have, I have thoughts about this, about how like, yeah. it's actually really important. It's really important to there's, first of all, I draw a distinction between giving up and quitting and giving yeah. up is what happens at 10 PM, the end of a long day. And you just don't think you do it anymore. And like, whew, I can't do this tomorrow. Giving up, hap- quitting happens in the morning when you're like fresh and you have the energy and you can do it, but you're really questioning about whether the goals that you have for your own life are lined up with where your activity is taking you. And if the answer is no, you really have two, well, you really have three options. The first option is do nothing and just let inertia take over and be miserable. 
I don't recommend this. The yeah. second option is to change your efforts, change the activities. And the third is to change your goal. Those are really sort of the, the universe of all the things you can do. And I think there's a stigma associated with changing your goals, but actually being flexible about goals and being willing to change them allows you to take, make more aggressive and experimental ones in the first place. And so I talk a lot about the value of leaving behind things that don't match your values or your goals anymore. And I did that a number of times through the book. It's an emotional experience in every one of them. I'm not, I'm sounding way more clinical about it now. In the book, I sort of, I feel like I capture some of the, ugh, this sucks moments. Yeah. Well, you've got distance on it now. Uh, Annie, in her, in her book, Quit, has a wonderful conversation that she ends up having with Astro Teller at Google X. And because he, you know, they work on these massive projects that could take 10 years, but that, that, that also means that they don't want to waste millions of, or billions of dollars if it's not going to work. So he has a thing called the monkey and the pedestal. And the idea is that if your job is to get a monkey to recite Shakespeare on a pedestal, <clears throat> concentrate on the monkey and the Shakespeare and don't start building the pedestal. Because if you start with the pedestal, you'll have the illusion of progress uh, when maybe all along you would never be able to do it. Yeah, I think um, you know there's a paradox in creating a startup. And the paradox is that you have to have enough arrogance to be able to say, there's a thing that's broken in the world and I can fix it. And nobody else could fix it. And so I'm going to, which takes in a level of arrogance that like is pretty astounding, right? Mm-hmm. But you also have to be willing to listen to your customers when they tell you you're wrong. And uh, that like that drive to, to make a difference and to change things, um, it, it's experimental. You have to experiment. You have to, tr- you have to be willing to fail if you're going to be willing to try to be willing to succeed. And so a, a part of that is just not holding on too tightly with the things you thought were important, your, pa- your past self thought was important as you get new information. Yeah. And that's, you know, the problem is that's not a skill we get to practice. Oh, hell yeah, you do. You do it every day. You get well, up, you, you do, go to but, work. But, but not, but not outside of that. With. So, so my, yeah. my point being like, we know that peak performers have, pr- they practice stuff like, like base, major league baseball players play catch. And they do that for a reason, right? They right. don't just scrimmage. And my, my thought, this is my, the mantra of the show, is that if you want people to ex, you know, uh, basically do these kinds of behaviors, you have to have spaces in which they can practice uh, failing, practice risk. I mean, that's, that's the whole improv proposition is that we're going to play these games uh, and you might be really good at them, you might be really bad at them, but you're going to build up the skill of better listening, better communicating, um, looking foolish and getting through it. And that's just not a, you know, the, we fight that as humans because that's not the way we're built evolutionarily. Yeah. I, you know, there is something that you can practice and um, I, I think we, I think you can practice intentionality. And so yeah. w- w- one of the themes in the book is this idea that uh, anyone will spoon feed you a goal, a, a, a goal for your life, a definition of success, whether it's the white picket fence or getting married or having 2.4 kids or becoming wealthy or, or starting a nonprofit, whatever, like a lot of people, maybe every person will have an idea for you what, what you should do with your life, what success looks like. And, and I asked the question, who has defined success for you? And the only right answer, this is not like an opinion. This is like a fact. The only right answer is you. Yeah. And, and that doesn't just like, you can do that at a huge level. I can say like, my goal for my life is uh, 
to leave the world a better place than when I found it and to have fun along the way, which that's literally, that is my goal for my life. That's what I'm trying to do. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but that there's a ladder for that, right? There's, there's the things I'm doing currently with Fixer, my new business and the things I did at Grubhub and the things I'm doing with the book. Right. But there's even the things I'm doing this week and the things I'm doing this day. And if you, if you practice intentionality in terms of defining success and really objectively asking yourself, am I going towards that goal? Am I, are my efforts driving me generally towards that goal? It's a bit of a random drunken walk. It's not a straight line, Mm -hmm. but like, am I generally heading in that direction on a week by week or day by day basis? And so you flex that muscle a lot and uh, it requires a certain level of humility and honesty to ask yourself the question, am I messing this up? And to answer that question, yes, fairly frequently. So you do get some practice in the sense of like, we're all in a time machine going that's traveling at one day per day, right? Like you still, mm-hmm. like you still get a lot of reps in this and, and you miss them if you're not being intentional. So I'm curious, was it, you seem to have a really clear idea on this stuff. And I tend to agree with you across the board on, on everything that's in the book and your, your ideas about this. Was that, did the bike trip coalesce this or was it always there? It, it hasn't been always there and I'm still learning. Okay. So, sure. and it's still hard. So sure. uh, I don't, I don't have this all figured out. Let me just start from that point. So <laughs> you have so, a few things but, figured out that you're looking to share. Yes. I have figured a few things out. And and one of those things, you know, when I started Grubhub, I had a very specific goal. I wanted to pay off my school debt. I had 260 grand in student loans from MIT and Boston university and Northwestern university, my wife and I combined. Uh-huh. And I wanted to pay those off. And I, I realized at one point I had six, I was going to pass that goal. I didn't have the cash in the bank, but it looked really likely it was going to happen. And I was still going. And so I had to create new goals for myself. And it was, it was probably the second half of my journey at, at Grubhub, you know, between 2008 and 2014, I really started to think a lot more about what, what the goals meant, why it mattered and how I bring everybody on board with the company has goals and I have goals and they're not the same thing, but my goals relate to the company. And so can yours. And like, this is your department's goal. And this is like, and if, by the way, it's not working for you, if that doesn't line up with your values or what you want to accomplish, like, I wish you the best, like go find, you know, Mm -hmm. we can change your job or you can go find a job for tomorrow, whatever. Like I want you to be, I want people to be fulfilled in the work they do. And, and so what I've had is I've had an opportunity to exercise that muscle a bunch of times and find situations in which the alignment wasn't there, which is going to happen to all of us. Nobody gets it right. hundred percent of the time. Nobody gets it right. Like 20% of the time. And then there are other goals that come into conflict, right? There's relational goals and there's family goals and there's child rearing goals. And there's, there's all these different things. You know, sometimes you're sacrificing current, I'm sacrificing current Mike for future Mike so he can retire well, right? Like, like there's all these different goals that are in conflict and figuring out which ones to put energy towards and which ones matter relative to the others. is like, it's a mess. Like there's no like formula for it. Unlike the formula for how to get the most out of a, out of a pizza, out of a delivery, which is always get the bigger pizza. We should talk about that because we, you know, before we went on the air, I used Grubhub yesterday to get a, uh, let's see, it was a medium pizza from Kalo with bacon, uh, onion, and sausage and green olive. Uh, And you're saying my choice of a medium was a mistake with regard to- It was absolutely, it was mathematically can be proven was a mistake. And the reason is that I'm an engineer, right? So as the radius of the pie goes up, the area of the pie increases with the square of the radius, which which happens at a faster rate than the price of the pie, which typically goes up linearly. 
And so uh, you should always get the bigger pie. And you didn't tell me that it wasn't a cheese pizza. The problem gets worse when you add toppings on because yeah. that's even more true for toppings, uh, which are, which tend to be uh, pretty much close to the same price, regardless of the size of the pie. I've seen millions of data points on this, by the way. Okay. So uh, it should have been an extra large. Yes. And should I have had more toppings? No, I'm saying if you're getting toppings, always get the bigger pie. That's it's even more oh, true. Okay. It was I true anyway, that. but it's even more true in terms of like the dollars for actually actual calories you ordered. Now, if you're trying to minimize calories, that's a it's a whole other thing to optimize. I, for. I, 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 sh- I should be that. That is a different <laughs> podcast. So, uh, so we're talking about Kalo. Uh, they come up because you that was one of your early customers you tried yeah, in around, the time in the right? first fifteen. Yep, and yep. they took a chance on me, and I really appreciate them. Which may not come across in the book because I know you're getting at this story. That yeah, kind of well, so so you you then they were kind of reluctant at first, and then they signed up, and so that's cool. And then later you go back, and and they they was it was something had changed, right, with the al- algorithm or something that you would need to show them. Yeah. So uh, when the business started, it was just a delivery guide. I wanted to find out who delivered to my address in Edgewater, right? And I was using Yellow Pages, or it's just whatever whatever restaurant dropped menus on my, on my front stoop, which uh, everybody knows Takeria El Ranchito was the best at that back in the day. Everybody had like five of those menus. Mm-hmm. And so, but I wanted other options. And, um, and so that was, it was just a delivery guide, but, but the, it was hard to sell the delivery guide. It's hard to get people to subscribe at a hundred bucks a month to just a guide. And so I switched to tracking the orders via this phone system where we put up a special phone number for a restaurant. It would come into our systems. We'd tell customers they were being recorded. And then we send it on to the restaurant, uh, the call on the restaurant. And then I would end up with these CDs. At, at the time, it was too costly and prohibitive, even then, for people to connect and download all the MP3s. And so I would just bring the CDs to the restaurant. It was also a good opportunity to like shake hands with the restaurant tour, make sure that they were finding it valuable, get feedback. And so I'd deliver these CDs. And so... Uh, yeah. So the story that I tell in the book is that I handed the CD to, to a particular restaurateur. I don't remember if it was the manager or the owner, to be honest. And I don't want to name names. No name. They names. had been watching some adult material on Windows Media Player prior to me handing the CD. And that's what came up first. And uh, that was not a great moment in my sales career. I'll say that. I didn't I didn't close the deal. That, that was, no, no, that deal was not <laughs> closed. Yeah. All right. So I, so I want to stay in this Chicago restaurant thing for a little bit because, uh, you know, I, I have a national audience, but I also have a Chicago audience. Um, talk to us about the steak burrito at Garcia's. Um, so I live near Lincoln Square. Yeah, um, uh, it's great. It's it's great. But it's then, great then you've got the steak burrito from Carbon in Bridgeport, which I have not had. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's there's a point. So the business got to the point where it's successful. And there is this point where we were trying to figure out. Um, people would say this thing. They would say, Hey, I got a great Grubhub order yesterday, or Hey, I got a bad Grubhub order yesterday. They weren't talking about the restaurants. They were talking about Grubhub specifically. And so instead of trying to educate people like, Hey, we don't make the food. That's the restaurant. We leaned into it and said, okay, let's make the Grubhub order the best order it can be. And so one of the things that we had to determine, and there's, there's like a whole chapter on this where we're trying to talk about and trying to figure out like, what makes a good burrito? And from the from the Grubhub's perspective, it's the one that keeps customers coming back the most. Mm-hmm. And so I have this theory that the that what people say about a burrito, the highest ranked burrito, is not as valuable 
as how people act about the burrito, the most frequently reordered burrito. Yeah. And, and Garcia's had the highest ranked burrito in Chicago and Carbone had the, had the most frequently reordered burrito in the country. And so wow. there's a really strong argument for Carbone's burrito is actually better, even though people say Garcia's better order, like burrito is actually better. And it, it's just this exploration of the idea of data, right? And I, I, you know, you get those, you get those, like you go on a United flight and you'll get a survey that says, Hey, r- rank us one out of 10, how much you'd, um, you'd, you'd re- how likely are you to refer us to another customer? And I, the, the survey drives me crazy because yeah. I don't understand why they don't just actually ask us to refer a customer and then measure the number that do how people act is always a stronger indicator of how they feel than how people say they act. So this might be interesting to you. We we had a program here for many years called Brand Stage, and we were hooked up with a advertising conglomerate. And the and the idea was focus groups don't really work; they're not enough. And so what we would do is get a group of impro- Second City improvisers and put them on stage uh, in front of this focus group, essentially to play with the brand, maybe the brand essence or elements of the brand. And then basically, our data point was: Are they laughing? Yeah. So. So them creating an emotional, what was the emotional moment they've got? Cause they are, they're laughing. That's powerful. And what I've was got it a about? Great story I can share. Yeah, please. That's not in the book. Yeah. But oh, that I, I wish I could have had space to put in there when we, uh, so Mandy Pekin, who was the head of marketing, um, through most of the love grow Hub's life prior to the IPO, um, she had this philosophy that the thing that mattered most about ads was an emotional response. It's not yes. about delivering facts. And so she would take her ad copy and go down to the Merchandise Mart, and, and which is a big, um, it's, a, it's a huge building in Chicago with a lot of like trades, uh, like various home furnishings, yeah, sofa stores and, and everything. home goods. Yeah. And yeah, it's huge. The point is there's thousands of people there on an even day. There's, an, there's a subway station, all this stuff. And so she would go around and show people ads. And all she was asking for is, how do you feel? And mm-hmm. if people laughed or if people got mad, those were both equally as good. Yeah. But if people felt informed, like, man, that, that's not a good ad. And you may, re- and, and anyone who saw those early Grubhub ads, they were obnoxious. Like we had this, the, our best performing ad, the one that drove millions of people to use Grubhub. It was a picture of a fish and it was swimming. And the, there was a diver behind it. And the diver had a little speech bubble that said sushi. And the fish had a speech bubble that had a word that I, I can't actually say on air. Okay. Uh, started with an S and ended with a T. Yeah, uh, and like it just made people laugh. Like this mm-hmm. idea of like the sushi's like ah oh, crud. The Grubhub order's coming for me. Like while it was still a fish, and uh, it's it just that ad perform outperformed everything we had by a by a mile. So um, yeah, and, and so and it didn't say anything about what the app was. No, no. So my sister-in-law also advertising uh, uh, person. And that's her big thing is like, you just, you want the emotional, it's all emotion. If you can get them to do something, cry, laugh, whatever that you've won the day in terms of being stuck in the memory. So yeah, I totally agree with that. There is so much I want to ask you about. We're never going to, we're not going to get to all of it, but you talk about this class at MIT that was taught by Dr. Amar Bose. Yep. Am I saying that correctly? Dr. Bose, that's right. Uh, both speakers. Uh, he started both yeah. speakers. Yeah. And I think it, it feels to me like the lesson you learned out of that was amazing in terms of a, a, th- a real world thing you could apply to your career, especially in a startup or innovation space. 
Yeah, there were there were a number of things I learned from that. One of which was how to make sound sound good coming out of a speaker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, like the mathematical formulas, which was not real relevant for the rest of my life, but was super interesting. But actually, the the couple things I learned, one of which was, um, it's really hard to know how to make a good speaker. And so what you do is you make a good speak, you make a bad speaker, and then you and then you measure it, and then you make a better speaker. And this idea of just start and then improve as you go was incredibly important. The other thing that I learned in that class, which was helpful for creating a business model was this idea of um, you can, you can observe how a business is take that same approach. I just mentioned, and you can observe how a business is going, put numbers behind it and then sort of figure out which numbers matter. And it turned out for, for Bose, that was minimum time and inventory, which is why they launched outlet stores. One of the first outlet store companies for, for Grubhub, it was, repeat purchase rate of the of the restaurants especially the longer we keep a restaurant on the system the the better it was for every everything for the business for the restaurant for the diners and for us mm. all right so you you um you have strong feelings about the grubhub you left um and where it is now you still you, you still use it as a customer i do too i do yep uh but you say in the book quote oh by the way the business went way off the rails and became brutally exploitive which are, which are not kind words for your former. Yeah, I don't think the um, Grubhub Twitter account is going to be retweeting my book. Is that going to be retweeting or promoting your book? I was aware of that when I wrote it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what? Uh, uh, tell us about what you take issue with. I think that, um, you know, when you, when you look at, let's take some examples. When you look at eBay, right, they've been charging yeah. or, or Craigslist, they've been charging reasonable rates to their customers for 20 something years. And they're, and they're just fine. When you look at the other end of the extreme, Ticketmaster, they charge oh. exorbitant fees, just absolutely outrageous. And the only yeah. way you can do it is through regulatory pressure and monopoly. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe some goons. I Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know, I don't know how they manage the rates because everyone hates them, right? So they're, they're actually a counterexample of if your customers hate you, you might be fine. Um, I, I think... Grubhub certainly is closer to Ticketmaster in terms of the percentages they take from restaurants than they are to Craigslist. Mm. And I think it's problematic. I I think that uh, the company is great when it's supporting independent restaurants and the de- to the degree that they make it more likely for restaurants to exist a year from now. If they're more likely to exist, if they sign up for Grubhub, then if they don't, that's fine. If it's just a prisoner's dilemma and they just have to pay the rates, that's not okay. And it might drive profits for a quarter or for a year or even for a few years. Uh, but, but you don't survive in the long term as a business by making your customers hate and resent you, which has been a reality that they've had to face. Now, I still think it's a great company. I still think that it helps restaurants, but I think on margin, um, they need to deliver. They need to, the, a, any company, not just them, any company needs to deliver based on delivering value for their customers. And that customer is both the restaurant in this case and the diner. And as it exists right now, it's a pretty crowded space. There's not a ton of differentiation between Grubhub and Uber Eats and DoorDash. And so they charge high rates. And then most of those just go to advertising to reacquire customers that they've lost already. And so all that money is really just going to Google, which like, why not just make a better product? Why not just have a differentiated product? better product. And they've started to do some of that. The, com- the, the, certainly the, um, the partnership with Amazon where you can get a Grubhub plus 
membership for an if you have an Amazon Prime membership, that might actually drive some real differentiation. It's a, it's a slippery slope. Like you, you don't necessarily the partnership with the 800 pound gorilla is not always like the best move, but it it seems to be working. And I think they'll be able to deliver more value to restaurants and customers because of it. So I like the direction the company's going now. But there was definitely a point uh, where the rates were just too high. And and I think just companies need to be careful about that, about exploiting the customers that um, that really they 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 owe their success to. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned your former partner, Matt Maloney, before. And in the book, you say, quote, Matt is smart, persuasive. And when he gets around to doing work, it's top notch. But he's, but he's also very Matt forward. Uh, what this means is beyond working together, I'm not even sure that I'm actually his friend, nor he mine, end quote. Do you still feel that way? Uh, let me also say this. Um, that that might go both ways, right? Oh, yeah. Like, okay. If I'm being totally honest, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm pretty Mike forward. And so, yeah. uh, and yeah. I think I make that point in the book, too. Yeah, I think that, you do, too. Um, that there are no perfect, blameless heroes in this story. There's a lot of people in it who... Bring their whole selves. And um, and so, I, you know, I think, uh, no, I have no resentment or hard feelings. We we built a huge successful business together and it was great. Um, and he was way more instrumental in the success of the business towards the IPO. And I was more instrumental in the success of the business at its start. And yeah. so I don't have any hard feelings about, about it. I, I, I thought he came off pretty well in the book because I poked fun of everybody, including myself. Uh, and so... I think holistically, that's sort of how I feel. Yeah, about it. If I you, don't have a lot of resentment. If you read the whole thing, it feels to me like a lot of those people were trying to look out for your interests. And as I think you pointed out before, it's not ultimately for them to define that. It's 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 for you. But mm-hmm. I think I think it was earnest and and it, in a caring sort of way. Um, and and I think to the it was a good leave. It was a good quit. I think so too. I, yeah. I, I left on a high note. I left after the IPO, uh, after the company IPO for two and a half billion dollars. And I rode my bike into the sunset. It was great. You Everyone literally rode it. your bike into the sunset. Yeah. I mean, I uh, went east to west. I went east to west literally because you can't ride into the sunrise. No, like I, you have to go west. Just, yeah. Just spiritually, you have to go west. Well, okay, and and on that count, that you you said you this became a so like a kind of a rolling confessional, and it's like it's like I don't know if you were finding broken people or broken people were finding you because you were kind of broken, you know. But maybe that went both ways. Yeah, I this weird thing happened between like day ten and day forty that really surprised me, which was you know I'm riding this bike, this bicycle across the country. I'm staying in campsites. I have my tent with me. I'm staying in campsites, and this is like literally a month after a multi-billion dollar IPO. And so I'm like, I'm just, I'm just staying in campsites and and meeting people. And I have all the time in the world after 10 years of like 15 minute time slot meetings, I have all the time in the world. And so a thing happens when you have time to listen to people and that's, they talk Uh, when you just, when you just sit and listen and have an open ear and don't judge, uh, People really want to pour their hearts out to you. It got a little bit overwhelming on the trip. And that was, it was weird. It was only for a period of time because later in the trip that didn't happen. And I don't know if it was, I was less open because I didn't look as like vulnerable or it, something must've changed with me in addition to it changing with the people that I like, I don't think the people I was meeting changed. I think I must've changed. And I have, I still, to this day, I have a hard time putting my finger on what happened during that month 
that suddenly everybody was trusting me. Uh, but it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful time in my life for sure. Um, so let's talk about fixer.com. Uh, you, you say in the book quote, what if the second time around I create a company where the business we are in can't be divorced from the benefits we create and that's fixer.com. Yeah. So generally this idea of impact businesses are exactly what I said in the book that you just quoted is, is they can't be divorced. And so I started a business. It's an on-demand handy person service. It's called fixer. And what we do is we go into customers' homes and we do all the things that you'd expect a handy person to do. You know, we, we mount TVs and hang up artwork and patch holes in walls and fix minor plumbing and fix minor electrical, uh, not minor, but like, um, small job electrical, small right? Job. Uh, you know, not stuff requiring big permits and stuff like that, like little fixes. And so that's what we do. And the way we do it is we have a full time W2 workforce with benefits that we train from scratch. And the benefit that we create is we create, we increase the skill and diversity of tradespeople in the communities that we serve, and we create economic mobility while we do it. And the reason why that's such a good business model is because there aren't enough skilled tradespeople in the communities we serve. And so by increasing the number of people, not only can we deliver a product that nobody else can deliver because it's this amazing person who's been trained and is really like loves what they do and like is really into the company and is supported and financially secure. Uh, but you also like, can't find that person anywhere else. Like you, you can, you can go somewhere else and try and find them or ask a friend for it. If they know a guy right? and you get a phone number and you go to voicemail and you never get called back. And so like, it's this, the business model and the impact we create that they're one in the same. And then that's, that's in our DNA. It's in our bones as a company. It's in our corporate charter where we actually, this is a really weird corporate structure, but, um, our benefit to our stakeholders our our fixers is of equal importance to shareholder return in the actual corporate charter, which is a super atypical way to do a company, right? The values that we, that we ascribe to as a company, they're used in hiring, they're used in terminations, they're used in bonuses. People get bonuses based on whether or not, like if customers say you're honest or respectful or skilled, you get bonuses at the end of the year for that. And so our customers Mm -hmm. actually drive the bonuses based on our values. So all those things create what's called mission lock. It creates a company that can't without, unless you put a massive amount of energy into it, you cannot divert the company from the mission that it's trying to create, which for us is we fix things and we build people. And so it took me 20 years of running one business to be at the point where I could be equipped to run this, frankly, very hard operational business to build and run. Um, and this, by the way, is the whole reason I wrote the book was that Businesses are huge levers for social change, regardless of whether you want them to be or not. And so be intentional about it. Be thoughtful about what you want that change to be. If I can convince 10 people to do that, the book is a success. Ideally, that means more than 10 people bought it. So I would also like to sell a bunch of books. Yeah, but sure. that's what the point of the book is. Um, it's interesting because the reality is you could not have done what you're doing right now without the other thing happening at the previous company. I couldn't have done something this hard. No. Uh, no. I, I picked the very hardest business model I could pick with the very strongest mission lock. That doesn't mean that I couldn't have, I couldn't have made more impact in the previous business I did, or that people who are starting business now or just in businesses now can't make, can't make a difference with their work from a community benefit perspective. So, um, yes, the particular business I took 
is taking advantage of the fact that nobody else could have gotten funding for this idea, but we did. Yeah. And so I'm leaning into my advantages to create social right. impact, which everyone should do. Everyone should cheat. Every, if you can cheat to make the world a better place, then freaking cheat. Like, don't like, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a great line towards the end of your book where you say, quote, I also have read enough books to know that the things we own end up owning us. Um, and I think that doesn't need to be a bad thing. I mean, I think that's what you're dealing with now, right? That this is this is a particular kind of own that could be such a net positive at the end of the day if you could make this thing work. Huh. I hadn't thought I hadn't thought of it that way. But the business yeah. that I own, like the fixer owns me in some sense. Yeah. By the way, I don't we, own the whole thing. We have investors and the yeah. employees all get equity and everything. But because um, it never goes one way. I think we, we yeah. just, as, as human beings, we tend to think like, okay, yeah. well, it's me, you know, but it's like, we're, none of us do these things alone. And, and, you know, <clears throat> so having an understanding of that dynamic, it's like I uh, interviewed an author recently who talked about dealing with difficult people at work. It was her second book because she realized after writing the first book about this, that she was only seeing it, like assuming that it's always the jerk uh, and not recognizing that, oh, we play a role with regard to either holding those people up or, educating yeah. them or, you know, making the dynamic better or whatever it is. And so it's a much more sort of nuanced uh, look. You know, what has been wonderful about the experience of uh, not a lot of people read the book yet, maybe 30 people who have podcasts or reporters or whatever, maybe yeah. 50. And uh, I'm starting to hear things back that I didn't realize I had written. So sure. when I, when I made the statement that you just quoted to me, which was the things we own end up owning us, I was literally talking about material possessions. Yeah. But you got something bigger from that, which is like I did. the things we put our effort towards end up owning us as well. Yeah. And uh it's that's really like like, yeah, that's true, but I didn't realize I wrote that. It's pretty it's no, pretty no. cool to like well, and you know, the, yeah. the the act of writing is discovery. I think Vonnegut said said it probably in a more beautiful way. Um, but I know that for my book, like that it, it's still stuff when people send stuff back to me, I'm like, huh, I didn't actually I don't think I meant it that way, but who knows? Um and what we what we know about human beings, because I work with a lot of behavioral scientists, is that we are the worst narrators of our own stories. Often, um, we we don't we think we get these interactions correct, and I actually think you're sort of um, uh, you're more self-effacing than a lot of other humans, and I think in that you probably see more uh, than other people, uh, and th- and that sort of comes through in 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 all the different levels of the book. At least that's my read. Yeah. And there'll be other perspectives as well. I'm sure that I'm sure that the manager or owner that I mentioned at Kalo isn't going to love the book. And I feel I, a little I, bit, I do feel a little bit bad about that. I know. Uh, but I at think... the same time, it's, it, it, it's, I was trying to, trying to show the not glossed over, not sugarcoated version right. of creating something from nothing and how it's an, uh, like, I, I refer to it as sort of a drunken random walk at times. Like I'm generally headed in the right direction, but it sure isn't a straight line. I, I think we have to assume that that person at Kalo is gone now that they're, it's probably they, true. they got it was caught 20 years ago. Yeah. Literally it's 20 years ago. Yeah. So uh, we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes. And story. Do you have one for us? Yeah. So I finished Grubhub. I did the bike trip and now I'm on this like new journey, which is fixer and, and the book coming out about the, about the previous one. And, um, there, there's an element of, wow, I can't believe how hard this is the second time around. Mm. Like, it's really, really hard. Writing the book was hard. Creating another business was hard. And a few people have said to me, like, well, it's easier the second time around. And like, no, it's, it's literally not. It's literally not easier the second time around. 
And um, well, yes, it's okay. Yes. And yes, it's easier in the sense that for a given hour of effort, I have more tools to make that hour more productive, but it just means there's more demands. It just means I have yeah. to do more, not, mm-hmm. not that I actually spend less time and energy on it. Uh, and I, I love it because, you know, when I think about my daughter seven and when she goes to school playing and working and learning, they're all the same thing. There's not a distinction between those three areas of life. Mm-hmm. And something I'm unlearning right now is this idea that there's a distinction between playing and learning and working. And that actually challenging myself is, is necessary for fulfillment as a human, uh, even though it's hard, like hard and fun are often the same thing. And so that's, that's sort of the journey I've been on right now. Um, even just reflecting on the book, I literally, I literally wrote, the, I literally wrote the book on this and, yeah. uh, and I'm still learning it. So it's, that's been satisfying. What's funny is uh, the task I was doing right before we jumped onto tape was I got an email for a panel I'm on next week. It's an organization that is trying to encourage play uh, for girls, young, young girls who, mm-hmm. who uh, basically a lot of the, who don't have access to sports or music or any of that and understanding. And they want us to sort of express to them how important play is. And, and, and I think my job on the panel is to absolutely sort of say like, well, play is how we learn um, play also. And we can see the negative effects when it gets stripped out of us, as, especially when we go into certain kind of workspaces, it can lead to loneliness, depression, worse health outcomes. And, and like you say, it's, it's, um, it's all one thing. It's all one thing. Yeah. And, and we separate out at, at our peril quite frankly. And I, I just feel like, and I know this, the story I always tell at Second City is we do a lot of work in the corporate area. As you know, when we framed that as play, no one wanted to buy it. When we framed it as improvisation, they were like, oh, I get that. Think on your feet. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. But it's literally, it's playing games. <laughs> right? That's a great job. Yeah. You've so, got you know, a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, the book yeah. is called Hangry, A Startup Journey. Mike Evans, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
recevra. 